Gara sat on her perch in the sky and watched her children. They were so confused, scared, and lost in their own world. The ones whose land lay lowest, whose houses shook most in the storms, were the ones forced to abandon what they knew. Acres of land were left behind, towns lived in for centuries, emptied out. But running to find a safe elsewhere, only death waited for them down the road. They drowned in the rising waters, starved on boats stalled on open sea, dried up crossing deserts to nowhere. The earth was bathed in the blood of Gara's children. It washed up onto shores and swirled downriver, caked onto the sides of shipwrecks and soaked into the desert sand. Those on higher ground barricaded their borders and loaded their guns. What is mine is mine forever, as if they were immortal just like their mother, as if anything they held in their own two living arms could be held close for more than a century at best. Still, her children did not turn inward in search of redemption, but turned on the land itself with bare teeth instead. They tore across the world as it shrank into the ocean and squeezed from it whatever it had left to give. Wild animals were hunted until their echoed calls died out. Rivers and oceans were picked clean until the water sat lonely and still. Trees were transformed into fires and walls and roofs so that the shade they once cast was but a memory. Gara closed her eyes. Her children had gone beyond anything she'd feared. If they removed a world to live in, the cycle would not reset, not ever again. Her children would be gone forever. She did not want to see any more. She wished herself to be blind as they seemed set on destroying themselves. But then, a thought to save them. Gara came down to earth and measured out the land, she erected borders of her own to protect the earth from her own children. Large white rocks, the size of men, set into the mud, the dirt, the sand. Gara told her children they were not to pass the rocks until the world was strong enough again to hold them up, until they had relearned their childhood innocence to do no harm. To guard the land beyond the borders, Gara unleashed wild beasts into them. She warned her children not to cross into the protected land, and she warned them that the wild beasts would rip them apart if they did. Satisfied, Gara flew back up to the sky and watched her children from her perch. Many did not take her warning seriously. They crossed into the forbidden zone, and they were torn apart by the wild beasts without exception, without mercy. Gara did not flinch as the flesh of her children was parted by the beast's bloody fangs. It was time they learned their lesson. It was time that they obeyed. This has been your early morning gospel of Gara, Alethros for the years of migration. May we tread lightly upon the earth today and every day henceforth. The body next to me is warm. It smells good, and before I can stop myself, I have nuzzled myself under the arm beside me, inhaling the smell. Air trapped between the sheet and his skin. He's lying on his stomach, and I rub the smell of his back. Curly hair rubs against my wrist. A mixture of joy and regret and slight embarrassment wash over me, then disappear again, and I am left with nothing but the urge to find my clothes. 
I let go of the man beside me, slide out from under the covers, and dress in the moonlight by the window. I need to get back to the hotel before the gospel starts. Two days in a row would be tempting Gara's patience. You leaving? His voice is gravelly and muted, spoken half into the pillow. I have to get to the gospel. I whisper into the direction of the bed. He doesn't reply. Gentle snores fill the room as I shut the door behind me, and I try to climb down the stairs without making sound. I run the short distance back to the hotel. I can't help but realize how easy it is to break in, if you can even call it that. The front door is unlocked. There is no one at the front desk. When I get to my room, I plug my lack box into my wave box and churn. The familiar crackling of the open frequency fills the room. I'm not sure what time it is exactly, but I lean against the table and churn the box slowly by the open window. Picture my energy building up inside of the box, trapped and ready to receive and spew out the gospel. The gospel comes through and I feel cleansed by it. Afterwards, I bathe down at the river. I get breakfast in the dining hall and sit next to the man who is no longer awed by the many people walking by the window outside. When I leave the dining room, there is an extra plate of fish tucked under my shirt. The little black creature is waiting for me when I get upstairs. A lightness fills me, almost like relief, as I watch the creature eat in quick, snatching bites, licking the plate clean, no longer afraid of me, no longer ready to make a break at any moment, its neck growling loudly. Instead of jumping out the window, the little growler streaks against my calves in appreciation as I open the door, then disappears into the hall. I feel clean in my river-washed clothes. My belly is full of fish and berries. Contentment seems strangely close. But then I remember last night, and even though it led to something else in the end, embarrassment streaks my cheeks in red plumes, and I dread going to the law offices that morning. He will be there, and I hope he says nothing, but he likes to poke fun. I wave goodbye to Ilsa on my way out, and she smiles at me. A quick walk, and I am at the office, exactly on time and ready to go, even though the many beers from the night before have left me shaky. As I turn to walk into the law office, I find Kane standing there, staring down at me. I almost run into his wide chest and look at him, dazed. Let's hope this won't be too unpleasant, Kane says without preamble. I just nod. It's not clear if he means our morning's mission to the park or working with me, and I don't ask. We walk to the stable and get our horses and trot westward. There are no questions from my end that morning, and for once, Kane feels like he needs to fill the silence. The park isn't bad during the day, but don't go there at night. His horse is a half-pace ahead of mine, but I keep step as we get closer. It's just, it's like a cult, a little bit. I haven't heard of cults since my law training. The general view was, bad. Cults are bad. What kind of cult? I ask, my words sound as stale as they taste. It's like a sex cult. Everyone is married to the leader and he, well, he sells the women to men around town for an hourly rate. Oh. I don't really know what to say to that except, is he like magical or something? Kane laughs. No, 
His name is Willie Hano. He's whatever the opposite of magic is. No shit, I think. Willie Hano sells his so-called wives to other men. No wonder the woman I sat next to in the law office that first day looked so afraid to pick him up. She brought him home, and he probably turned around and sold her to the closest bidder. I met one of his wives. Well, at the time I thought it was his one and only. Legally, it may have been. Kane says, not turning around as we slow near the edge of the park. Mounds rise in its middle up ahead. Kane turns as he dismounts his horse. He has one wife that is his legal wife. I'm not sure if he sells her as well. Never asked. Isn't it illegal? I dismount just behind Kane. Why do you think his wife was picking him up from the law? Kane laughs forcibly. But he goes right back to it every time. And the women he sells are usually sold to people well-connected enough that he always has one get-out-of-jail-free card. I can see that Kane has walked us over to a path made of wooden planks, covered in a layer of muddy water. Be careful. Parts of these like to dip under. Most of the swamp looks like you can stand on it, but there's pockets that will suck you right in and under. We find a tree and tie up the horses that stand side by side, resigned, but willfully awaiting orders like any good law. We leave them behind and start to make our way out onto the muddy planks. Smells like horse ass. I mumble to myself, but Kane, with his new sense of attentiveness, picks up on my misgivings. I know. You get used to it once it's all around you. Great, I think. Hey, Rose? His voice sounds like he's about to apologize. Oh no, please don't. Please just don't say anything. I will jump off the planks and let the swamp take me under. I'm sorry about last night. I may have been sending some signals I hadn't intended to. I test the very edge of one of the planks with my left foot. How easy would it be to play my falling off as an accident? It's fine, really. My tone is curt, desperate to get back to professional. It's not that I'm not interested. It's just with the case. It's confusing to stack one on top of the other. He makes gestures to indicate confusion, but I just smile grimly. I can still feel his eyes on me, filled with pity and something else, a sense of amusement. Then his leaving the bar in a hurry. After that, me leaning across the bar, trying to look inviting instead of defeated, miserable, embarrassed. So, how do you make this beer taste so good? My words were slurred by that point. I could tell they were. But my caution had just met with a full blast of rejection. To feel anything but what I was feeling, I was willing to do anything. My foot slides across the wet wood, and Kane spins around and grabs my shoulders just in time. Even just yesterday, I wouldn't have hated being rescued by Kane, but now I feel too exposed, and I want to hurt him just like he hurt me. I should thank you, I say, steadying myself. With him close, his hands holding my arm and shoulder, I can't help but notice that he reeks. Or maybe it's the muddy water that surrounds us. He lets go of me as I regain balance. You almost became one of the swamp people. Kane smiles. The pity in it makes me feel even worse. He turns back around, and we keep walking down the narrow path. No, I mean, thanks for last night. I had way too much to drink. Oh, well, yes, of course. 
He hovers for a moment, so I can catch up to him and he can walk beside me. A whiff of something foul. The path is so narrow, his arm is rubbing mine through our linen shirts. I try to ignore the feeling of him ascending down my gut. It all worked out for the best, if you know what I mean. I make my voice sound conspiratorial, like what happened last night was something he'd brought on. Kane doesn't say anything. The smile on his face fades a little, then disappears. Childish satisfaction pierces my chest. The other feeling goes away. But these things never last more than a moment, and then I feel even worse. Kane speeds up again and walks ahead of me the rest of the way. At the end of the path, the planks give way to a group of small hills. Yellow and purple weeds grow across them. The mounds are covered in a mist that makes the place look made up, almost magical. It's prettier than I'd realized from the edge of the park. But then the huts focus into view. The tents made from bug net material, filled in with grasses and refuse. The yellow and purple of the plants seems to fade away. There's women everywhere. Commotion. Women of all ages. And the tents mending clothes, washing them in buckets filled with water, cooking over fires, and tending to each other's hair with flowers and beads. This seems pretty tame. I whisper to Cain. This is why we came during the day, he whispers back. But if you haven't noticed... They're all in one state of fertilization or another. He's right. I hadn't noticed. Swollen bellies are all around us, some protruding more than others. Kane raises an eyebrow at my eyes, dashing from one woman to the next. If they're not pregnant at the moment, Willie will see to it they will be soon. I look away from the women and focus my gaze on the dry grass between Kane and myself. A shudder works its way down my spine. After a few moments of silence, a small woman, or maybe just a very young girl, her skin layered in dirt, comes over to us. Why are you here? Her voice carries authority that doesn't match the rest of her. I'm Sheriff Kane, and this is Deputy Rose. We are here to see Willie. Her dirty face folds into creases, and I almost expect the dirt on her cheeks to crack as she snarls at us. We don't like the law around here. I'm not here to bust you, Kane assures her, but we heard someone went missing, and we're trying to find her. The woman gives out a short laugh, almost a howl, then says, Wait here, lawman. Then, looking at me, with a mean laugh, spits out, Woman. Then cackles as she walks away. Kane and I stand on the misty hill waiting, and it's not long before Willie Hano shows up. A crumpled little man much like the wife I met at the office. What do you want, Kane? His voice is high-pitched and seems to come from his nose more than his mouth. Two of your women came to our offices to report someone missing. I glare at Kane. Is he really playing into this your women shit? Ah, yes, Catalina. She has been missing for almost four days now. Three days. My voice is deeper than his, and he startles when I speak to him. This your woman? He turns away from me and looks at Kane. My fists begin to clench. I could arrange for his voice to rise an additional octave. But Kane glances at me out of the corner of his eye, and I slowly unclench my fists, their tightness transferring to my jaw. She is my deputy, yes. I say nothing, 
but stand up straighter to look down at Haino. Catalina's been missing three days. Willie Haino addresses Kane. And two of my women came to report this, but we hadn't heard from you, so we assumed... He waves one hand over his shoulder to indicate that no one cares about them. Well, we're here now. Kane pushes. Do you know where she may have ended up? Oh, yes. Willie Haino says calmly. One of her lovers. And trust me, she had many men who would have killed for her. He laughs. But only one of her lovers was ever a problem. He came here after dark two nights in a row, just before she disappeared. She didn't return after she went to work one night, right after we all saw him threaten her. That was over there. That's her place. He points towards one of the tents up on the opposite mound. Its shredded netting moves gently in the wind. That's when you came to see us, after you found her home empty? Kane pushes Haino on. Yes, we came right away, right after she was gone. Some of the other women say they saw him. He was very angry the last few times he came to see Catalina. But that last night, he was out of control, screaming at her like he was possessed. He wouldn't stop. He went on and on, very late, even for us. Again, he chuckles to himself. It was so late that we made him leave. But then the next day, she went to work and never came back. And all her things had been thrown about, strewn all the way down to the water. He points from her tent down to the swamp. Can you describe the man? Sure, Haino says. Angry, in a suit, walked out here in fancy shoes and everything. Short and angry and red in the face. Do you know where he would have met her? Kane asks. Haino points to some of the buildings in the western quarter. Those two buildings over there were Catalina's. No one else really uses them. Lovers usually like to take them to hotels, or even their own homes. But Catalina was beautiful enough that her lovers were willing to go anywhere she wanted. And she didn't care much for travel. She went where it was most convenient. He giggles to himself. Anyway, I have work to do. My women need me and my services. I hope you find her. I dearly miss the money she brought in. I take a step towards him, and Kane grabs me by the arm and drags me back down to the path. Not the time, Rose, not the damn time. Can I come back later, then? I hiss and turn around just in time to see Willie Haino be greeted by two of his wives in a way I've greeted very few men in my life. We shuffle back along the path to the horses. It's slippery, and the sun hasn't cleared the morning fog. It sticks to my skin and crawls under my shirt and feels like sweat. Do you think it was the husband? I ask Kane from behind. Fits the description. The back of his head shakes back and forth. Not enough to go on. That description fits half the men in town. Can't arrest anyone for being angry and in a suit. I look down at my feet, making sure I don't lose my footing again. I don't want Kane to have to rescue me twice in one morning. Last night has made everything awkward. The memories of it keep popping up as we tread along the walkway. I can tell you a secret. His hair, so dark, almost black, pushed back behind his ear, windswept like Fanny's. I love secrets, I told him, which is a lie. I hate secrets. But I was drunk, and I was sad, and I felt so alone in this place I didn't know anyone. You promise you won't tell anyone my secret ingredient? I promise. Which wasn't a lie, but came out as a specially slurred promise. 
I'd had another one of Jack's beers after Kane had turned his cheek to my lips. After his blue eyes had stared into mine, mine that were green and filled with dumb hope, and I had tried to kiss him like an idiot. And at the last moment he had turned away, and then turned back again with that look of pity and amusement that I knew would haunt me. After he realized how mortified I was, he was kind enough to take his leave. And once he left, I was willing to make all kinds of promises to get the only other decent guy in the bar to help me forget. The only problem was that this particular guy was also working the bar, so his attention was divided. I had to bide my time. After most of the patrons had drank their weight and left, and Fanny was taking care of the last stragglers, Jack had finally started talking to me. However, at this point, I was four sheets to the wind. I haven't even told Fanny, he said to me in a voice so low I had to lean in closer across the bar. I found a secret berry. A secret berry? I wasn't that interested in the berries. I was also trying my best not to hiccup my words. I grow them on the roof, Jack winked at me, so that no one can steal them. Smart, I said, and leaned back to finish my beer. Three people walked into the bar then, and I was starting to think it was hopeless. Decided it, it was maybe time to hang my head and just go home. Fanny said she'll close up. I have some of the berries upstairs if you want to try them. Jack had reappeared, and I turned to Fanny, who looked at me and shrugged. Kane had stopped in front of me when we got to the edge of the park and asked without turning around, Was it the bartender then? He turns off the path and starts unknotting the horse's lead. What? What I want to tell him is that it's none of his damn business. Jack, you. He shakes his head. Never mind. Let's just find Catalina. We mount and ride northbound to circle around the park and into Western Quarter, over to the buildings Willie Hano pointed out to us. You can take that one. Kane points to the less dilapidated of the two, and we tie our horses back up. I'll take that one. He points to the other. Is it safe? I'm embarrassed about last night, but I still don't want him to go crashing through unstable floorboards, and the building Kane is set to investigate looks moldy and chewed up. I'm sure it's fine. These women know which buildings are safe and which ones are not. We part ways. I open the front door of the two-story building. It's a strangely familiar sight. Narrow, spindly stairs leading up. I check the downstairs rooms, but they're empty. Then I take a deep breath and head up to the second floor. Dust kicks up around my feet as I pass over the top step. There's a large room to my right, same as in the other building. The faded wood floors inside the room have been wiped clean, unlike the dust-clad stairs. Dread fills me. I know what's coming. Dark red circles, almost black. Does that mean the blood is old? Can blood go bad? I really should know these things. These are things a sheriff should know. What shades of red and black blood turns over time? I stand in the entryway, three circles like before. I don't want to look up. I know what hangs there. Who hangs there? It's too familiar. I read the words above the lakes of blood instead. Once, twice, again. Don't look up. Not yet. 
dirty, polluted, whore, from left to right. Almost the same, but not quite. Something about the new word pinches a memory. Something from long ago. But I can't place it, and I let it go. It will come to me, sooner or later. Dirty, polluted, whore. The work of a copier? But it can't be, if she's been missing three days. If it really is her blood mixed in at the other scene, the killing would have taken place on the same night. Copiers can't tell the future. That's their downfall. But then again, there's no way to tell whose blood it is exactly. For a second, I swear I can hear breathing behind me, down onto my neck. I take two more steps into the room. Turn around. Of course she isn't breathing anymore. Catalina. Missing her womb. Painfully beautiful, even without it. Even with her tubes and their little clouds mounted in between her legs just like a saddle. Just like the married man's girlfriend. She isn't pale, like the girlfriend. She's all blues and greens. The bruises bleed into each other, palms into thumbs into the imprint of a fist on her chest. It looks like someone rubbed their hands on leaves and roots and then pressed them all over her body. She's covered in them. It wouldn't surprise me if her cause of death turns out to be blunt force. Her eyes have vanished, eaten by something wild. Her hair is dark. It's not like mine. It's a small comfort. We won't trade places in my dreams tonight. I realize I don't think I dreamt in Jack's bed last night. Maybe I should thank him. We tumbled up the stairs together, as drunk people do, except that Jack was sober and I was drunk enough for both of us. We tumbled upstairs and I made us both clumsy. He closed the door behind us and I laughed as I knocked a box from his dresser, and jewels went pouring out onto the wood floor of his bedroom. Greens and blues and red glistened up at us from the dark wood floor. Leave them, he said, when I dove after them and started picking them up and putting them back into the box. It's just stuff people leave at the bar. He pulled me up by my arm. <laughs> you don't bring them back to the law office? I said playfully, like I would get him in trouble. He smiled, a little ashamed. Sometimes, but not usually. I pulled him close. We made it to the bed, barely. He pulled a sponge from his nightstand. Neither of us wanted that kind of tax on our heads. It was sloppy and filled with laughter. But when it was over, I cried into the dark, and he didn't say anything until I was done. And then he told me about the bar that his parents had given him and Fanny when they were still teenagers. Probably just to be saying something. Probably to stop me from crying again. He told me how he had asked Fanny to stay with him so they could work the bar together. She didn't want to leave New York. She'd do anything for me. She always has. Must be nice, I said, to have someone like that, someone who will always be there. He didn't disagree. He told me of his parents how they were raised in Western Quarter until they saved enough and bought the bar. They didn't really believe in all that Gara stuff, Jack said plainly. So I don't either, I guess. Lots of people in Western Quarter don't. I'm not sure I liked that he was saying that, but I just asked why not, why he thought the Gospels were false if all that Gara wanted was to keep the earth safe from our ignorance. I'm just not sure I get it. There's too many rules. 
People are meant to live free, not surrounded by borders like this. I told him not all people deserve to be free, that my father was in jail. Then I told him what my father did, that people like him did not deserve to be free, and he was forced to agree then. After a moment of quiet, after proving my point, I told him of how my father tried to earn my forgiveness through letter writing. Did you forgive him? Jack asked into the air above us as we held hands. I felt strangely close to him when he asked me this. I don't know. Our shoulders touched and stayed pressed together for a long time. Then we both fell asleep. It's quiet in the room with the dead woman. I pushed the memories of Jack aside. This isn't the time. It's here. Kane has appeared beside me, and I startle. I didn't even hear him come up the stairs. The building next door was empty. I gathered as much. I can't look away from her bruised body. My stomach lurches, and it feels like the ground is coming towards me, but I move my feet apart, standing my ground. Kane walks over to it, lifting a hand above his head like he's about to touch the dead girl's arm. Gara, he really did a number on her. The room spins, and I try to move my weight into my feet. Another wave of sick comes through me, and I retch air, forcing me to turn away from her. You all right? Kane touches my arm gently, and I close my eyes. I just haven't been sleeping well. With all of these. I wave my arm up at her and cover my mouth with my arm. Just a lot of bad dreams? That usually happens, especially with your first. He means it as a comfort. It's not. Can I just go back to the hotel? I can get back from here. I can see the park. And I'll let the others know we found the body. Kane nods. After keeping watch with the first body, he must know I no longer trust him to leave me with a second. Yes. I turn to leave. Harper? He has never used my first name before. I turn to look back, standing at the top of the stairs, one foot suspended, ready to escape down the dirty stairwell. Maybe once this is all over, we can start over. Just until then, I mean you get it, right? With a quick nod, I descend the stairs. A horrible wave of sick rolls through my stomach, and I feel like I might throw up into the street. But even the dirty air of the western quarter is clean enough to make what I felt at the top of those stairs dissipate from my body. I really hope we catch the guy. I'm not sure I can take another dead girl hanging from a wall somewhere. Hours later, I watch the sun set from my window, looking out towards the river. Orange. Pink. Such easy colors compared to red. After they brought the woman to the medical office and Kane got me from the hotel to watch the autopsy with him, I returned to my room, found a dreamless, perfect sleep on my heavenly bed. We got the missing piece, the link to solve the crime, and now my mind feels like my own again for the first time in days. Kane had banged on my door, and I had been staring at the ceiling through my bug net, waiting for sleep or something else. When I let him in, he looked around the room as if he was looking for something, then focused on me. Manu had found something in the woman's body. He wanted me to see it as part of my exam. 
When we arrived at the medical office, behind the law office, it was its opposite. Instead of town drunks getting wrestled to the ground, clean tables and smells of antiseptic filled the rooms. Minu led us to the back, where the woman was laid out on a long table. Her bruises had darkened further. But in the sterility of the room, with the official tools of body butchering, I did not feel sick at her sight. Curiosity gripped me. I found this inside of her, Minu said and turned to grab a small bowl from a shelf overhead. It was in her stomach. She placed the bracelet with blue jewels before us on the table, and there was a sharp smell. Is that the husband's bracelet? I turned to face Kane, who was staring at it, nodding slowly. It fits the description, but we'll get the wife in tomorrow to confirm. He looked up at Minu. Good work. This is enough for an arrest. Minu nodded, but she was looking at the woman, who looked like more of a girl. Poor thing, she said quietly as we turned to leave. Outside the medical office, Kane was less forgiving. Damn swamp wife, probably thought she could keep it for herself, swallowing the damn thing. He muttered to himself, shaking his head. Idiots, every one of them, to get killed over a bracelet of all things. He rubbed his face, then told me to take the rest of the day to recover. I would need my strength in the morning after we questioned the wife. We would have to locate the husband, who had apparently never come home, according to the wife the deputies questioned earlier. He was rumored to still be in New York. I take Kane's advice and go back to the hotel. I don't want to mix the women on the wall with my feelings for Kane. To distract, I pull my satchel over my shoulder to eat berries in the barn with Moon. I've neglected her, and she turns away when I first walk in. But I hop into the hay beside her, and she lies down so I can kneel and brush her back. The sun goes down, and I let myself lean against her, giant and warm, and breathing so steadily it puts me to sleep against my will. When I wake, the stars are piercing through a thin layer of clouds rolling above. The barn is barely illuminated, as is the street outside. It's quiet. It must be very late. Even the bar across the street is closed. So much for that beer. I rub Moon's back, and she lets out a large breath, then falls back asleep. Quietly, I creep past her and up onto the gate, so to not wake her and the other horses. And then, one foot propped onto the gate, I freeze. There, in the middle of the night, is Kane, riding his police horse like it's the middle of the day. Motionless, in the dark, I look like I'm part of the barn. He doesn't see me, and then he's gone. Northbound. Without thinking, I whisper to Moon to wake, and she stands. In my wild impulse of the moment, I saddle and lead her out of the barn. Moon doesn't protest. Excited to ride with me, she huffs and pleased grunts. We turn to the main road. Fickle protection of darkness under the night's roving clouds, we move to the edge of town where I catch a glimpse of Kane and his horse. He disappears towards the narrow of New York. I slide onto Moon's back, stick in the saddle, and we glide along like we're one of the clouds above us. I spent my childhood slinking after people unseen, and I'm good at it. Soon we're close enough so that I can make out his mounted shape, tall and steady on his horse. We move through the narrow and head up north, further out of the city.
The sky is clearing, and I give him room so he won't turn to find us. Trees begin to crop up along the path as we move further towards the woods. Suddenly, he rides a sharp left. It's not the way I rode in when I came to New York. It's a path I didn't know was there at all. The trail is barely worn enough to follow. The creatures of the forest chatter at us from the shadows, and I wish I'd put on my bug paste. Without Cain in sight, I have to trust the gently worn trail. Every once in a while, the trees clear enough to see him far up ahead. The path winds up along a small stream. We follow along the water until we come up against a large, white rock, the size of a man. I've never ventured close enough to see one in real life. Moon stops as I pull her reins close. The gospel is clear. To pass the border is to be met with death, to have your flesh ripped open by wild beasts. And yet Cain is nowhere in sight. He must be ahead of us. He must have passed by the boulder. I stare at the white rock like it will speak to us, will give us warning. Nothing happens. I loosen the reins. Moon moves. The white boulder gently scrapes against my boot as we cross the border and pass into the forbidden zone.